Hey guys, welcome back to Tell Me About It, where we have a good old-fashioned heart-to-heart and take a magnifying glass to the parts of life that are often conveniently left off Instagram. The heartbreaks, rejections, mistakes, shameful moments, and losses that we often are convinced we're alone in going through. This week I got to sit down with a woman whose music was such an important part of my adolescence. To this day, I swear I know every single word to Baby It's You and Leave, which we all know is Leave, Get Out. She was the youngest ever solo artist to have a debut number one single, which was followed by a string of hits, including Too Little Too Late and like I said, my favorite Baby It's You. She starred in Aquamarine. Oh my God, let me just tell you how much I loved Aquamarine. I wanna watch that movie right now. She was excellent in it and truly has the voice of an angel. Yes, no other than JoJo is on the show this week. The original JoJo, might I add. JoJo let me in on why we didn't hear from her for nearly 10 years when she endured a legal battle with her record label that silenced her and prohibited her from releasing new music. We talked about parental mental illness and shared our mutual experiences having mental illness play such a prominent role in our upbringings. We talked about shame, perfectionism, and the risky behavior she engaged in before finding help and caring for her mental health. JoJo was actually the breadwinner of her family from an extremely young age. She was just 13 when her first hit single was released, and we talked a lot about the crippling pressure that came with that. We really went there in this episode, and I'm just so appreciative of her bravery and willingness to share this part of herself and her past with us. JoJo is finally able to release new music, and thank God, because this EP is truly a gift. It's called Trying Not to Think About It, which honestly is the slogan for all mental illness, and is about her experience with anxiety and depression. She talks about the negative, anxious voice in her head, who she calls Berlinda, and has an entire song about the decision to allow herself to go on antidepressants. It's the perfect Tell Me About It EP. It's so beautiful and so important, and I really believe that everyone should listen, especially if you suffer from mental illness. You probably already know who JoJo is, but let me just jog your memory real quick. 17 years into her career, JoJo has made a triumphant return this past year with her fourth studio album, Good To Know, debuting at number one on the Billboard R&B Albums chart and earning widespread acclaim. In 2018, JoJo re-recorded and re-released her first two albums, JoJo and The High Road, under her own label, Clover Music, so her fans could finally get the nostalgia they had been missing for so many years. I am definitely one of those people who are desperately missing her music, so I am eternally grateful she re-recorded those. And without further ado, here is the voice we've all been missing. Here's JoJo. Hi, JoJo. Hi, Jade. I'm so excited to meet you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. First of all, I just need you to know that both Aquamarine and Baby It's You defined my adolescence. (laughs) (laughs) Truly. Mine too. Yes. (laughs) You're like, yes. I know, which is so crazy because I was like, obviously seeing like what year you were born and everything. And I was like, oh, she was a baby also when this was all happening. So crazy that at at 30 now to have 17 years ago, I started my recording career. So it's just insane. Yeah. You've lived like 17 lifetimes in those just 15, 16, 17 years, right? So so much more to go, but yeah, a a lot. (laughs) We've done a lot. So you are, I've learned, a Sagittarius 
you do yoga and you smoke weed, which are like all three reasons that I love you because I'm also a Sagittarius who does yoga and smokes weed. Hold on. So are you are you a more Scorpio Sag or are you like a true Sag? I'm a true Sag. Okay, because I'm right on the cusp, right on the cusp of Capricorn, December 20th. Okay, I'm the 14th. So, okay, yeah, so you're you're right in there. Yeah, do you feel Capricorn-y or do you feel more Sagittarius? I feel definitely identify as a Sag for yeah. sure. And yeah. I have a lot of Aquarius through my chart too, which do you? sounds, I don't know. I want to learn more about astrology and what it really, I have like co-star and the pattern and stuff. So yeah, get this. There's an app called Chani. That's really good. It's made it a little easier for me to understand. Cause it's like rising sun, moon. You're like, what the hell's going on? Yeah. Hard to keep it all straight. Hard like, to keep it all straight. I know. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. I want to know about your childhood before you were 13 and thrust into the spotlight. What were you like growing up and what was your childhood experience like? So I'm an only child and I was raised around music because both my parents Mm -hmm. were musical. So I always loved hearing my mom warming up her scales because she was a soprano in our Catholic church. And she would also do like, local shows and, and just sing. Yeah. So show tunes, things like that. Yeah. Kind of in that, in that style. And then my dad would just pull out the harmonica and the guitar. And so I was just always. How lucky. Yeah. Always Mm -hmm. surrounded by music. And then I think I learned to impersonate the the sounds that I heard Mm -hmm. and I wanted to emulate and try to, I just always loved sound, noise, music, all that. So what was I like as a kid? I was curious. I was, mm-hmm. I loved dinosaurs and I loved animals. I was curious. I liked to play. I liked to explore. I had a good imagination as most only children do. Right. And I loved to bring people together whenever I could convince people to listen to me. I would make, make them get in a circle and listen to me sing. <laughs> so. Oh, that's so sweet. Were your parents together when you were growing up? No, not really. Like, they were they were together for maybe a couple of years and then okay. they got divorced and my dad was in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. My mom was in Massachusetts. And so I'd see him like every other weekend come down to Massachusetts to bring me up to New Hampshire. So I spent most of my childhood in, in New England until I was 12 years old, all, all throughout New England. So 12 years old is when you signed to a record label, which is yeah. insane. Like at 12 <laughs> years old, what, what was I doing? It's the scariest thought in the world. But like, what was that like to be in the spotlight? I mean, I can't believe Leave Get Out came out when you were 13. Like, I can't either. It's like I'm talking about someone else because no, it's, it's just so weird. Totally. It, you were a baby. You were yes. such a baby. So, But girl, I was so precocious that I was like, since I had been singing and doing, um, I did like local theater and TV mm-hmm. shows and commercials and stuff in the Boston area and also like taking the greyhound bus to mm-hmm. new york city with my mom and stuff for like auditions so by the time i did sign that first contract i was like mm, right on time yeah time for me to be famous <laughs> I, I just already felt like i had been doing it for a long time because i yeah were you like an old soul i was definitely an old soul i could definitely you could definitely say that yeah were you yes for sure and is that a Sag thing? I don't know. I don't know. But maybe it's a depressed Sagittarius thing because we are elite. <laughs> Give me a depressed Sagittarius and I'm happy. <laughs> you got to regulate somehow. Yeah. Yes, exactly. What year was that when you were 13? 2004. 2004. 
before. Oh my god. Yeah. Okay. So social media wasn't really entirely a thing, but it's MySpace really. Oh no way. Right. Okay. So were were you really torn apart at that age, or like when did fame start to become difficult, or where did you see that both sides of the coin? Growing up, and and just going to a regular public school in Massachusetts, I always kind of felt like an outcast and, mm-hmm. and like I didn't really fit in. So when I got to start living out my dream really early on, that kind of exacerbated those feelings of feeling like an outcast mm-hmm. because, and this is not me being like, this is so sad. This is just me no, saying like, of course. it's just, it mirrors like how I already felt. I'm like, like I don't fit in and Nobody wants to play with me and and all those things. So especially when I would like, I went to the mall and it would shut it down because I was so famous at like 13, 14, 15, 16. And I was like, okay, so I already felt like just like a weirdo, but, but of course I was like, this is awesome. But then I was also like, but I feel kind of lonely. And I wish, like, I wish I knew who liked me for me. And I wish, so I would say that because it's really confusing, especially when you are still forming your thoughts about your self-worth totally, and on how you find validation and affirmation and all that stuff that hurt my young feelings. And especially like, I remember like agents saying, Oh, I love you. Like, I just love you so much. And really being like, okay, love you at the end of a phone call and being like, y'all don't love me. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And, uh, that was not normal to me growing up. Like people, when they said, I love you, you knew that they loved you. Welcome to LA. I know. (laughs) (laughs) So that was confusing messaging for me. Um, I would say probably 14, 15, a couple of years into my like putting out albums. Yeah. Where you started to feel like this disconnect, the dichotomy of fame, which is like on one hand, it's amazing. You're successful. But then on the other hand, you're kind of like, why do I feel lonely? Yeah. Why do I feel lonely? And I also, because I was so young, I remember going to the VMAs for the first time and seeing all like the cool kids who were like at least 17, 18 years old. But since I was 13, I just felt like I was this pariah. Not mm, like, yeah, kind of totally. like an outcast once again. Yes. So I, I felt embarrassed. I wanted to lie about my age. I wanted Aww. to like be like, don't focus on how young I am because (laughs) so, so kind of early on those seeds of like embarrassment, feeling like an outcast. And it was, um, it's interesting how that kind of carried on from even elementary school through and then just became a part of something that I've had to work through. Totally. still have to. Yeah. I mean, Lord knows. What are the girls like when you were just coming up? Were you able to establish friendships with them or like just because they knew what kind of what you were feeling and going through or was it pretty clicky and toxic? It was it was not friendships because there was a marked difference in age, like 13 to 18. Like when I was 18, I was not going to be kicking it with 13, 14 year olds. You know, that's just yeah, like it's a totally different way too cool for school. It's different if you're 22 and 26 or Mm -hmm. any something like that, because you're, you're grown now. But so I felt really isolated and Mm -hmm. me me and my mom just definitely clicked up even more and understandably. So, yeah, I mean, I do remember a couple, you know, older girls who were very famous at the time kind of Mm -hmm. offering me their advice and their like kind of taking me under their wing, Mm -hmm. but without naming names, these were not people that, you know, you should be taking advice from. So it was just interesting. Like they'd come up and be like, oh my God, babe, let me come and like (laughs) hang out. And I'm like, you are, I I can tell because I've grown up around addicts, like you're on drugs. So 
so that was that was weird too and confusing because I wanted to be like I wanted to gravitate towards people and stuff and I'm like my mom would be like you're not hanging out with them I'm like they're the only ones that want to <laughs> hang out with me they're on drugs yeah. <laughs> okay we're gonna take a quick break and we'll be right back I've read that you have talked about kind of like growing up around people with mental illness. And so it wasn't necessarily taboo. Can you tell me Mm. a little more about that? Full transparency, mental illness was definitely present in my home growing up as well. Yeah, my both my parents have had issues with self-esteem, with Mm. self-love, and that is manifested in depression, anxiety. And my dad unfortunately didn't survive that addiction Mm -hmm. and it ended up he passed away almost six years ago Mm. maybe five and my mom you know has had a lot of trauma in her early life mine too and so I saw that up close I saw the results and like her living with the trauma and and trying to take responsibility for her own happiness and struggling within that Mm -hmm. so when you have someone close to you who struggles and, and it's within a family, oftentimes you have other members of the family having strong opinions. Yes. Giving unsolicited advice or, you know, you should, uh, yeah, just a lot of people thinking they know better and maybe they do, but it could be, once again, very confusing as, as a kid. So absolutely, as I've gotten older, I really have come to understand, I don't know if you can relate to this, but I, I used to have a very low tolerance for uh, the inconsistencies that I saw in my parents. Oh my God. Do you I know really? what I mean? Oh my God. Do I know what you mean? I mean, yes. As I've gotten older, I, I really get it now. Like being a human being is very difficult. Being Totally. Like, but it's scary when you're a child. It's scary because we want that stable foundation that we can go to and understand and rest in that hammock of emotional stability yep. and all that stuff. So it's like, yo, what is going on? But then when we when we start to experience our own struggles, then we're able to look back and, and have a bit more understanding. Definitely. That's the thing, you know, with children of either addicts or just children of parents with mental illness, whether it's depression or schizophrenia or anything, it's like you don't want to tell people that, oh, my mom suffers from mental illness because you don't want people to think that's the only side of them. You don't want people to make assumptions and totally forget about this other magical side of them. You know, 100%. I I understand that shame and almost disappointment in yourself. You're like, Uh, oh oh my gosh, did I really just fall into that? Is this nature or nurture? And yes, it's tough. Yeah. And you know what it breeds? Perfectionism. And it's really toxic. <laughs> you are speaking to the choir and, 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 you, and you're so right about that because in perfectionism, you'll never live up to, to the standard that you set for yourself because never. no one really can. And, and then that can keep you tense and tight and locked and not doing the things that could help you take those little steps. Yeah. Because if, if you're not able to do what you envision yourself doing mm-hmm. in a perfect way, then you might as well just not do it at all. And and then that makes you feel worse. It's a terrible cycle. Yes. That feeling of shame and perfectionism is so universal within kids of, not only kids of addicts, but kids of just parents with mental illness in general. So when did you, let's get back to like when you were 13 through 18, did you battle with your mental illness at that time? I don't recall feeling symptoms of mental illness. I remember feeling an immense pressure on me to keep things together. 
And I think that having that weight on me as a child Mm -hmm. to be way more adult than I needed to be. And I don't just mean because I was like in the industry, I mean, behind the scenes, trying to keep things together. That's probably where like a lot of emotional and mental things started to mount during 13 to 18, because at, at 17 to 18, I had a couple very traumatic emotional, a couple really traumatic events happened in my, in my personal life. And mm-hmm. that is when I started leaning into substances to deal with them. So drinking to excess, you know, blacking out, not remembering how I got to where I got making out with random strangers, like just all the different things that you might deem to be like a rite of passage in college age time. Yes, but you're doing it in front of the world. And I'm very grateful that there's not footage of that, like that I wasn't hunted down like some young women were in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And But then that also led me to be like, oh, because I was going through a, uh, not only was I going through things in my family life, Mm -hmm. but I was going through a lawsuit in my professional life. So- So it's just further the fact that I was getting so messed up and just kind of coping in that way. I was like, well, nobody's watching me, so nobody cares. So it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter. You know, it just kind of all contributed to shitty feelings. um, Right. Yeah. Around 18. When did the lawsuit start? When you were 18? Around Yes. Mm -hmm. And it went on for nearly 10 years, right? It went on for six or seven years. I I was able to put out my third album 10 years after the release of my second album. Oh. So, so I was at, I was 25 when I released my third album, which is, okay. which is crazy because I released my first at 13. That's just normally not right. exactly how it, how releases go. In, so um, I, I would imagine you were creating music at that time because you're so musically inclined. So w- what did that feel like to be silenced? It was once again, confusing to my young self because it just, didn't make sense if you didn't want to put me out. Mm-hmm. I, it was confusing because I was willing to quote unquote play the game. I right. was willing to record what they wanted me to record. At a certain point, I was like, okay, like I'll I'll do whatever I need to do to to be able to move forward in my career because I do trust that you guys know what you're doing. You've done it. We've we've had two incredibly successful albums. Let's keep going. Yeah. So it was confusing to me because I thought I was playing ball. I thought that trying to live up to the standard uh, of what women looked like in the music industry during Mm -hmm. that time, I got on a very calorie restricted diet that Mm -hmm. they wanted me to get on. Mm -hmm. And I tried to quite literally shrink myself into whatever, you know, I, I know it's a tale as old as time. And like so many people have gone through that. So I was just like, okay, so nothing I do can, can figure this out. So, um, I was just like, I, I just must not be good enough. So I internalized it mm-hmm. to, to mean something about my, my self-worth and just my intrinsic goodness. And, but yeah, I was, I recorded, I wrote and recorded probably two, 300 songs during wow. those seven years. And thankfully I was able to, with social media becoming what it became and what it is now, I was able to connect with my fans through releasing music for free, through mm. getting working with producers who believed enough in me and co-writers who believed enough in me that I, they let me release the music and Mm -hmm. I didn't have to pay their producer fees or, or they would give me a good, you know, deal. And I was able to, yeah, I was able to release music for free 
not in the same way that I was used to in my first two albums, but Mm -hmm. that really kept me afloat and kept going because I don't come from a situation where I felt like I could just rest in the hammock of... I was going to say financially, that must have been devastating. It was, it was devastating because I am the breadwinner of my family. I'm the caretaker. So it really was very, it made me very scared. Right. So was it impossible, like being the breadwinner and having that role and being so young, was it hard for you to relate to people at that time? Were you like, where do I belong? Where do I fit in? Am I part of this group or that group? That's how I felt. Totally. I mean, I remember even like I did a show in the Philippines with like a festival with Timbaland and Justin Timberlake because we were on Timbaland's new album at that Mm. time. And I remember just internalizing what was going on and thinking that everybody must think I'm whack or I just felt so embarrassed. I felt embarrassed because I couldn't articulate what was going on. I couldn't explain it. It didn't make sense to me. And I I felt embarrassed. So I was like, oh, people must think that, that I just didn't know what, what people were thinking. And I remember being around other artists and completely not knowing where I fit in. I was so sad and I was so depressed and embarrassed and ashamed mm. and and confused that I didn't know how to just go and and hang out in the studio and just be cool and carefree. Like I was never carefree. I had so many cares because I I didn't have anywhere to go back to. I couldn't just go chill at at my mom's house. She didn't, I was like, yo, if I don't make a way for myself. So that became paralysis for me that I just didn't do anything out of just complete fear. Completely. And by the way, like your mom was your manager at the time, right? She was my manager until I was about 17. Okay. And, and, that was at the time that I knew I needed to sue the record label to be able to to have uh, a future. And, you know, she was so, she hated the music industry and mm-hmm. I don't blame her. So no. I, I was, I was They're like, hurting her baby. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So I was like, you know, I should bring somebody on who doesn't hate it as much as yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. God bless her though. She's, yeah. she, she knows what's up. Yeah. It's a painful, it's a painful experience to watch a child go through and for her to have gone through, you know, as a manager who was kind of being pushed around and and didn't have any experience in that role. Right. Right. Yeah. She'd just been thrust into that role from like just being in Massachusetts before. Right. Yeah. She was cleaning houses and singing in church and And all of a sudden she's a manager. Yeah. Wow. So what, how did your anxiety and depression manifest itself then? Because I would imagine it was pretty unmanaged as mine was when it, mine first reared its ugly head. Did you have toxic relationships? Did you? Yes. That, that, that's what I was going to bring up is that I think that I started to realize that my behaviors were, con- were quite concerning, like for me and for people around me, because of the people that I was gravitating towards, like mm-hmm. the boys I was dating and how we'd get into physical mm-hmm. tiffs. And totally. I had to go to the chiropractor because, you know, I was pushed to the ground and I, 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 it was very, I was in a very volatile situation and that was substances were involved. We were both drinking and he was taking pills and smoking weed and all this stuff. And I mean, I was concerned about, I never wanted to, like you mentioned, I didn't want to turn out like my, my parents. I didn't want to have the same afflictions. Mm -hmm. So that's when I sought treatment. And I do think that my manager at the time was very helpful and encouraging of me talking to somebody. So 
I really lucked out that the first person that I took a meeting with was a great fit for me. And I've been right. talking to her for a long time now. That's not the case for everybody. But no, I, it's so hard. I love, I love my lady. She's so great. And, oh my God, me too. And I've like grown with her now, but mm-hmm. I'm curious how, how did it start kind of rearing its ugly head for you? How did you realize that you needed to get some help? So I had an abortion when I was 21 and which like was obviously impossible from an emotional standpoint, just like, cause I knew that I had to, you know, but like it really like, I didn't anticipate having actually feeling some connection to like this soul and like feeling like I had to play God and feeling like all of those things. I really, it was a lot for me to handle at 21, but I just kept running and I kept being like, okay, it's fine. But like right very soon thereafter, like right after I had the abortion, I had to be awake for it because he was like too embarrassed. My doctor was too embarrassed to have an anesthesiologist because he didn't want everyone to know that he was performing an abortion, which is like in Beverly Hills. You know what I mean? It's it's wild. Oh my God. It's wild. And like I had to drop like cash off at his house after like this very fancy doctor. It was like super sketchy. Yeah. You just felt, I can't imagine. Ashamed. ashamed. So ashamed. ashamed. Dirty. Like, yeah. Yeah. And if, you know, as you know, like when shame is so such a comfortable place for you to be, it's like so easily triggered. So from that moment, like even just the hormonal difference, because you basically go from like the Garden of Eden being pregnant and then you go to like nothing because they take all every all your lining, everything out when you have an abortion. I had panic attacks and I'd never had a panic attack before in my life. I had them every single day, like intense ones, like lying on public bathroom floors, like just trying to like catch my breath like really yeah. really bad super debilitating and then like in that fall I graduated from college and then like being the most miserable shell of myself and then I just kept trying to outrun it and it hit a point where I was just in bed and I couldn't get out and I was having panic attacks and I was taking Xanax and all on all these yeah. different meds and I was like I have lost control of the vehicle you know mm. and, I, and it was affecting all of my relationships and everything and I just hit rock bottom and I was like okay I guess I have to accept this that I have I might have be mentally ill and I might need to get on antidepressants and like really get a hold of it. But I went to a, a mental health treatment center for two months that's and that's amazing. where I like really healed. I And I, I relate to a lot of that. I haven't been pregnant yet, so I haven't had, had that experience. But, yeah. But I know a lot of friends who have gone through that and I just, I really applaud you for, Aww, for, you. for speaking about it as transparently you. as you do, because we need to normalize these conversations. Really appreciate it. Also a a feeling for me, and I can think you would relate to this. Mm -hmm. I felt that I needed to protect both my parents from what was going on, getting Mm -hmm. out and that I needed to be the strong one. And me taking that on as a child was, Mm -hmm. was detrimental to my growth and my emotional and mental health. And so I've been having to unravel that and unpack that. And I, in feeling like I didn't have help or like I was out of control, I I started having panic attacks as well. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I wanted to do was get on an antidepressant because I just thought that I was supposed to be quote unquote stronger than that. that I could be a tougher. I'm like, I'm a tough cookie. I'm from Massachusetts. It's fine. And that was not the case for me. And it ended up being a life preserver that really helped. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, I want to talk about that because you wrote about, you write a whole song basically about allowing yourself to get on antidepressants, which is like, so incredible that you are taking your beautiful voice and your songwriting ability and giving people that gift because 
A song specifically about letting yourself and like what that feels like to actually come to terms with having to take a pill every day is really something you can only understand by going through it. So Mm. let's talk about your new EP because I love it so much. I think it's such a masterpiece and it's so true. I mean it. No, I really mean it. Like it's so beautifully written and you can tell it just comes completely from your heart. And like it's so comforting and relatable for someone that like has similar struggles. So tell me about what is it? Berlinda's theme? (laughs) Anxiety Berlinda's theme. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And then and what's the other one? Lift? Yeah. Yeah. I love Lift. Can you tell me about those songs? Sure. So Lift is the first one that you were talking about. And it's just uh, I for a period of about a year, I got off of antidepressants when I had been on them from like 22 to 27 Mm -hmm. and then 28 and 29. I decided to get off of them because I just was like, I've been on this for a long time. Let me see what my baseline is. Let me see if I can manage this with a plant-based diet and with supplements and with working out and mindfulness and these different techniques that I have accumulated over Mm -hmm. the years that I know are helpful. And I felt like I would be able to manage. And for a while I, I was, and then sometimes I struggled and Anyway, I reached a really low point at the end of 2020 Hmm. where I was in, it ended this relationship with somebody that was like my best friend, my lover, Hmm. my confidant, like a very, very close, important person in my life. And, you know, we broke it off after nine years of like being in each other's life. So I really felt uh, that I was just questioning everything. Like, who am I without him? And how do I relate to the world? And what do I even think? Was he the first relationship after your very toxic relationship? No, but he had been such a good friend that, Mm. you know, we had seen each other through relationships and all this stuff. And then just life, life happened in ways that I couldn't have imagined. And we got together and blah, blah, blah. Yes. So when that ended, I was just like, I felt so ashamed. Once Mm. again, I felt, damn, we can't believe did I waste my time? Did I waste his time? Am I a bad person for that? All of this. Am I a bad person for starting fresh for, you know, whatever. And I was so low and that looked like for me, not enjoying the things that normally bring me joy. Like Mm -hmm. even my dog coming to give me a kiss or hanging out with friends. I I withdrew and I- You're just numb. I was completely numb, despondent. Mm -hmm wanted to stay in bed all day. And I was like, I, I need some assistance. And I, I know I've been talking to my therapist, but I'm not doing the things that I normally would do to help myself, which is, yeah. you know, go work out, go meet with Because everyone's routines are, were so off, you know, it was, we were in COVID and like in quarantine. So lift is about being like, I need a lift. I need some help. And that is, I just, I was writing in Nashville actually. And I went to the producer's place that day and she was really dope and she seemed open and like maybe I could talk to her about this stuff and and I was just like I, I want to write a song about needing to get back on antidepressants <laughs> I love and, it. And it was it was just so cool to feel that I was so not alone in everybody needs a little assistance you know no completely completely so going back to when you first started therapy is that kind of when you first said okay, you know what, they, I have anxiety and depression and I have to make, I have to build my world around this now. It has to be part of, 
obviously not a huge part, I guess, but it has to be a decent part of my identity. Like, when did you really feel like you came to terms with like having not outrunning your mental illness anymore? So my therapist, because she didn't want to see me suffer and because of her own experiences with prescribing um, or recommending things to other people and for her, her own experiences with it over the past few decades, she made me feel like I was not strange or, mm. or weak to consider right. this. And so it was that she just wanted to see if, if this could be, that could be a helpful tool for me. But as mm-hmm. far as making it a part of my life, another thing that she encouraged me to consider is personifying my depression and anxiety as something outside of myself, which is where Berlinda comes from. Mm-hmm. I, I call such a good name. So perfect. <laughs> I identify my tendencies toward depression and anxiety as this, this bitch that lives inside yes. me who's like wants me to stay small and to fail yeah. and to feel shitty and to feel guilty and ashamed because that's her mode. That's her worldview, but it doesn't need to be mine because the truth is it's not my baseline. Right. My baseline, like when I think of my true nature as a child, like eight years old, seven years old, playing, being imaginative, believing in myself. I think that our true nature is really h- how we were as children. Absolutely. So, you know, trying to get back to that and, So I just think that the advice she gave me to not like quite identify with it as like, Mm -hmm. I am an anxious and depressed person, but being like, I do have these tendencies in this direction and almost made, started making a joke of it. Like Berlinda's on my back again. I feel her (laughs) trying to creep in and take the wheel from me and I need to put her in her place and almost reparent her and reparent myself. That's like all I'm focusing on right now is reparenting myself. It's really important for people like us, but it's hard. And especially... When you have been parentified, you know, for so much of your life, it's really hard to then be like, oh, wait, I actually need a parent at 27, 28, you know, at 30 years old. Yes. And it's hard. But I love when you say in that song, I wish I knew the difference between your voice and mine. Because I get that question on this show so often. Like, mm. how do I tell the difference between my intuition and anxiety? Yes. Oh, my gosh. It's I could hard. not relate more. Okay. So what do you, what is your answer when somebody asks a question like that. It's basically that I don't have the answer, you know, like I'm basically like sometime, I guess, I guess I really think that you can slip into like what Glennon Doyle calls like your knowing, like I think getting into like a really quiet place and being like, what proof do I have of this? Like what, you know, kind of, and like, just like being quiet with yourself and hoping the truth rises to the top. But often it doesn't because like your anxiety, while it's the worst thing in the world, it's also the thing that's trying to protect you from everything. So it's like, okay, I I can't completely reject this voice, but I need to corral it. We can thank it for what it's trying, the function it's trying Mm -hmm. to serve. Like, I I know you're trying to protect me. I know you don't want to see me hurt again or to be embarrassed or bruised or any of these things. But, but I think more so it's like an ego protection so I have a I have a tattoo and it says well, I have several tattoos. What does this one say? It's uh, go placidly amidst the noise and haste, even of your own mind, and mm. and remember what peace there may be in silence. So I love I love, I love what you said about finding that still place, that silent place. And I understand that to a lot of people it sounds very woo woo and goofy right, and course. stuff. And mm-hmm. I mean, but I can't overstate the benefits of silence, of meditation, of yoga and of trying to link breath to movement because when you do that like with yoga 
that was my first experience with calming my mind and being able to start having some relationship with seeing when thoughts came in because I had never noticed that before. Yeah. I had never taken an inventory of my thoughts and questioned them. And I think that's a huge step. Right. And like intrusive thoughts and being like, whoa, that's not me. And yeah, I think it's hard to, you know, come to terms with the fact that we aren't our thoughts all the time, you know, like, especially for me looking back, I can be like, okay, I can see where my anxiety and depression maybe were starting to grow, but it wasn't blatant by any means, you know, it wasn't really out there. But I really relate to what you were saying about like, sometimes I fantasize about myself before I had anxiety and depression. And I'm like, wow, that girl was so uninhibited and so bold and brazen and not catastrophic and not, you know, not catastrophizing things all the time. Yes. And all of those things. And it's, it's, you know, but at the same time, like our mental illness is our superpower. It really is. I just would imagine that through this EP, you found so much connection by finally just telling the truth. It's so true. The, the more, even from the the inception of it, when I was honestly reaching out to some of my favorite collaborators because I was like, I need your help. Not even because, because I'm trying to make this EP, but I was like, <laughs> I need to like remember who I am, who I think I am, which I think I am an artist. Yes. But, but I like to think that I am, but in the moment, I don't even feel worthy of being it because mm-hmm. I just feel so low and like, you know, having an existential crisis a little bit. And so it was through reaching out to, to some of my friends who I like making music with and telling them where I was at and then writing from that place. And then them opening up and me realizing even people who look as if they have it all together and they're in the, you know, most winning season of their life or their Instagram looks like their relationship is perfect and all these things. And I'm like, wow, you just shining. (laughs) Yeah. You just never really know the the things that someone's going through. So even from opening up as I was creating it, that was a real indicator for me that I was on the right path with with doing, with making a project, like a concept EP about this. And then the response from my fans has been everything that I've wanted because I just, making this project comforted me. Mm-hmm. And I'm, it seems like it's comforting some people who are listening and being like, oh, my God, that's my experience. Yes. And so tell me, what was that negative voice, a.k.a. Berlinda, your anxiety? What was she saying? Like, why did she not want the EP to L- come out? I love that. <laughs> because she would probably trust other people more than then she trusts me because mm-hmm. me, me, me trusting myself and figuring out that, you know, what does my gut say? What is my internal guidance system? Mm-hmm. Le- where is that leading me? She's like, no, you, you don't know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the, the executives, the suits, the people who make so much more money than you, they know. Why don't you just let them tell you how to do it? As opposed to me being like, I have two decades of experience in this. And my point is, I mean, my, perspective is just as valid. And sometimes you have to do things that not everyone is going to agree with. Mm-hmm. Not everybody is going to see the importance of a project that isn't considered an album. It just, it doesn't sound sexy or cool right. to do something about depression or anxiety. And Berlinda was reminding me like, well, don't you want to make tons of money, bitch? And mm-hmm. don't you want to, you know, do, don't you want to not worry about things? And I, I knew that this was something important that I had to do. And I had to ignore those kind of fear-based thoughts. Right. So you had to use your intuition like that. You knew that this had to. And I love that you say that you 
had to release this album so that you could continue to write other things, you know, like it just felt like the one truth that was missing. But it's true. Like I felt like once I was in a good space with my mental illness and good space, uh, tomorrow I could be in a bad space, you know, but once I had kind of more of a handle or I had more, I could identify the problem. I felt like I was exploding with, I wanted to tell people, like, I mean, I didn't want to shout it from the rooftops. I was deeply ashamed, but I just felt this need. I knew there were other people out there and I knew if I just languaged it, the shame would dissipate. And it feels better to me to talk about something. It gives me more power to to talk about it as mm-hmm. opposed to totally keeping it inside. It just does feel more empowering to be transparent with where you're at. I, I'm a terrible liar. And when <laughs> I try to promote a song that I don't really dig or when yes. I try to, you know, talk about something that I'm not that well educated on, I feel stupid. I feel like a fraud. Me too. And, yeah. and that's not worth it. It's like no. feeling that way is, is not worth it. So we might as well speak from where we're at and what we really have experience with. And that's what 100%. I think y- you highlighting these topics on your podcast is really important because you can speak to it from a place of fully mm-hmm. knowing that you're an expert in this area because yes, yes. you've lived it, <laughs> Yeah, you know? Totally. Whether we want to be or not, we are. All right. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I want to kind of go back to you turning 30 and like just kind of closing out your 20s. I know you said your dad passed away five or six years ago. So you were dealing with newfound mental illness, basically. And that compounded with tremendous grief. When that happened, were you already in so much pain or did that just cause another explosion? There were a lot of things going on at that time. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I had been preparing for a very long time, knowing that my dad, you know, might not mm. live as long as I would, I would love for him to live forever, you know, right. but kind of had to stop holding out that hope that he would change and thinking that, okay, you know, his, his organs are probably going to stop working because of all the, the years of abuse. So I had just released new music for the first time mm-hmm. officially on a label in mm. 10 years. And so I was just embarking on my first tour dates in, in a very long time as well when I got the call that my father passed away. So I think that I didn't go to a dark place at that point mm. because he and I were in a good place in our relationship. Mm. And I really did feel that he wouldn't want me to... I, I kept going for him. Like mm-hmm. I... It almost sounds disingenuous, but that's the truth. I I knew that the last thing that he wanted was for me to end up like him and that he wanted me to live the dream that he never got to. So I in in keeping that in mind, I told my fans and mm-hmm. my team and every exactly what I was going through. Mm-hmm. And they lifted me up. They they supported me. They gave me the time and space. And I was very confused though, because I think a lot of my life has just been kind of a thread of confusion of like, what what am I supposed to do? (laughs) Yes, I know. It's terrible. It's terrible. So of course I was sad and I was like, dad, I need you now more than ever. Like, why can't you physically be here? But I think that's another time. Around that time is when I deepened my spiritual practices and, Mm. you know, drawing more into meditation, uh, like going for periods of silence where I could just walk to the, the ocean. I like rented a room in a, a woman's home and, and she yes. lived really close to the, the beach. And I would just go and cry and look at the ocean all the time totally. and 
I, I just, um, was looking for ways to, to transcend and to, mm-hmm. and to go inward, but also find meaning and purpose in his transition. Yes. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. When we get a handle of our on our depression and anxiety, we get we get a grip one second, then we're slipping the next, you know. So I had like a bad depression day. I think it was Monday or something. And I was like, oh, forgot what this feels like. You know, like, thank God I'm on Lexapro because this my lows aren't as low. Yes. You know? Because I think for people with depression and anxiety, we think our coping mechanisms are unique and they're really not because, but they're shameful because they can be looked at as lazy or whatever. But what are the ways in which your depression and anxiety, if you're having a low day, what does it look like? If I'm having a low day, I really want to stay in bed and just, and roll around. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I, and I don't want to do the things that I know are showing my self-respect, which is comb my hair, take mm-hmm. a shower, you know, brush my teeth. All those just like regular hygiene things that I do when I'm feeling like myself. Yes. But they I go out the ne- window. They go out the window. And I want to eat comfort foods and I want to not go outside. Even if it's a beautiful day and I know it would be a good idea. I just like cannot motivate myself to yep. get up. And sometimes if I know that I need to get out of that, I'll let somebody know and then Mm -hmm. maybe they'll come over and watch a movie with me or maybe we'll take my dog out for a walk together or things like that. But but I see, I I know what you're saying about like, for for those of us who overeat, like I'll overeat and and binge. And that is something that maybe isn't talked about as much when it comes to eating disorders, binging and then restricting and feeling really there's definitely been times where I'll eat myself into a food coma. Yes. And I know what you mean. That's soothing and that feels comforting. And then I'm like, why can't I just get it together and think about the long-term ramifications of this, that I'm not going to be happy with the way my clothes are fitting, or I'm not going to, or this goes against my beliefs and what I should be eating or whatever. And so then it just, you know, makes me feel further bad about myself. Yeah. Cause you feel like, oh, I'm sabotaging myself. Fuck you. Yeah. For some, you know, you just like totally. Belinda comes, Belinda comes out majorly, yes. majorly. But yeah, when I have like those depressed days, like it's hard for me to reach out to people. Like, is it, is it easy for you? No, it's actually, it's actually not. I actually do isolate. So yeah, um, I will ignore the text. Mm-hmm. I will not pick up the call. Yeah. I'll probably, I'll probably text back and I'll be like, I'm cool. I'm in bed today. You know, it, it doesn't, I think that there is nothing wrong with taking time, doing what you need to do. And that's what I'm trying to wrap my head around and believe now that it's even okay for me to have a day where I just yes lay around because I I, I've never really thought that that was okay for me, but there's, there's far, far worse things to, to be doing. Yeah. And you've had so much responsibility from such a young age. Like I feel that way without even having had that experience that you have. Like when I actually like, I'm like, okay, I'm going to stop work and I'll let you go in bed. Like I say this to myself, I'll let you get in bed. But like, then I get in bed and I, it's, it's loud. It's sometimes louder in there. You know what I mean? Like the voice is saying like, you're lazy. Why are you, you know, you should be working. You should be doing this. You should be doing that. And I just wish, I just wish that when I like let allowed myself to get in bed, that like my brain would let me just take this day. But like, I, it's so hard to believe in tomorrow when you're in those depression moments, you know, you just just put it in the perfect way. I think that's like the most succinct, true description of what it feels yeah. like to, to be depressed for those who haven't. Yeah. Is that you you 
it's really hard to envision a tomorrow or a future that you actually believe is possible. Yes. That's happy. Yes. No, it's so true. Okay, we got to take a quick break and we'll be right back. So what are the ways in which, like, I know, I love that you talk about languaging, how it's really important for you to not say, I am depressed, I am broken. It's more like, I have these tendencies, and I think that's a really, because we are what we think, you know, we don't, our words have so much power. But what are the other ways in which you, I don't want to say corral, but the ways in which you maintain your mental health? Controlling what I can control, but not in a way of like perfectionism or I have to check check myself for trying to, you know, where is this coming from? Like, right. um, but no, knowing that I can just to a certain extent control my schedule and what time I wake up, what I do when I wake up, having rituals of not checking my phone right away because I know that that puts me into a state of reaction and panic sometimes yes. and and just worst case scenarioing, yep. all these things. And it's helpful to me to write out what my goals are for the next day or what just what I need to do. Mm-hmm. Even if it's that I want to wake up at 7 a.m. And from 7 to 8, I'm not going to look at my phone. I'm going to take Agape, my dog out, and I'm going to spend 30 minutes doing a yoga video and mm-hmm. prioritizing those things. And then, you know, whatever work commitments are for that day, mm-hmm. making sure that I just have them scheduled because that's helpful to me. Yeah. And when I know what I have to do and when it's coming up, that takes a little, that alleviates some fear that I have yeah. about not getting everything done or not knowing. So me having like a physical representation of it is, is helpful. And mm-hmm. I'm not always consistent unless I know what I would like to do and I have it in my calendar or or I write it out. Yeah, I read so. that you were like, and I love that you say this because again, it's something that only people with depression can really understand. But when you say making your bed, it's like keeping those promises to yourself is really the only way out. You know, You're like so right. my therapist used to say to me, like doing self-esteem is built by doing esteemable acts and like esteemable acts might be showering that day. You know, it's like keeping those promises to yourself you're so, so right. And I think making your bed as silly as it sounds, I'm sure many people like were just born and do it. That's a no brainer. <laughs> yes, to do, it's, but no, it's but not. It, for it me. wasn't. Yeah. Totally. So making my bed, picking up, you know, if, if I made something to eat, putting it away, just making, because mm-hmm. when, when I walk into my space, I want to have it be a representation of, of my best self or how things that make me happy and taking the time to do those things. Your future self will mm-hmm. thank you. Are you messy? It's hard to remember in those moments. Totally. I'm not messy, but I'm messy. I can Are you? I'm not dirty. I'm messy. Like okay. I, my my car is a mess. I always say the car is the window to the soul. Oh my god, you're right. <laughs> I have so many empty water bottles and like <laughs> your soul has so many empty water bottles. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, it's terrible. It's really terrible. But I I'm, I'm always trying to make an excuse so I'm like maybe it's my depression, maybe it's my Sagittariusness that's making me messy. <laughs> I'm like I'm like maybe I just have bad habits and I need to and I need yeah. to change. I don't know. <laughs> yes. So uh, kind of in keeping with that theme is it easier for you to forgive others or to forgive your past self? It's much easier for me to forgive others. Me too. I, ho- I hold myself to a standard that is 
not that I wouldn't put on anyone else. Yeah. You know, that I should have known better. I should have acted from a place of just being better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's really hard. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with that when you start to go down a shame spiral of past self hatred? Hmm. Well, oftentimes I just try to keep it pushing and not think about it. (laughs) And and then that ends up just mounting and, you know, I, it, I, I feel it in my body. I'm tensing up and I'm Which is just the title of the EP. Trying, trying not, to, not think to think about it. About yes. it. <laughs> but if I'm, if I really want to like work through it, because I'm such a sensual person in the sense that I, I love engaging my senses. I love sounds, mm. smells, tastes and touch and all that. I sometimes will listen to binaural sounds and like wow. sound healing. So I'll put them in put in both headphones and I use this, I like this thing um, called A Time to Heal by Cheat Code. And it's on Apple Music and Spotify and stuff. And sometimes I'll just close my eyes and let it go between both ears. And it's just like really beautiful tones and sounds and stuff. I've never heard of that. I love it. Binaural music, healing sounds. We'll put it in the show notes. We'll figure it out and put it in the show notes. Yeah. Wow. I'm going to use that. It's really nice. And I will just, sometimes I use affirmations. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a good heart. I do the best I can with what I have and where I'm at. And like, even yesterday, I was kind of in a shame spiral thinking about the past and how I handled the end of a particular relationship. And I just reminded myself that the only thing that exists is the present. The only, mm-hmm. like, we can only be. That's it. We can only be better right now. We can only be present right now. And it's, it's a waste of energy to think about. It's understandable. It's normal to, to think about the past, but, but if I'm thinking about like where I want to focus my energy and attention, mm-hmm. I try to remind myself and bring it back to the present. Mm-hmm. Just so true. It's so true. Anxiety can't live in the present. Right. What do you find most triggering today? Social media. Yeah. Oh, yeah, me too. Oi. Social media is really it's tough. Brutal. I find myself. Yeah. It's, it's hard not to compare yourself. Oh. Mm-hmm. Are you most inclined to compare yourself personally, professionally, or physically? Professionally and physically. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Not, not, not so much personally. I feel that's not as much like I know some people are like, oh my gosh, everyone's getting married and having babies. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. That, that doesn't stress me out, but it's more of the, because I've lived such a career-focused life for such a long time, that's totally. where I like get my self-worth from. Yeah, and you've been, you've lived on such a different track than like normal people your age at any yeah. age. So it's probably like you don't feel those stupid pressures, you know? I don't. And also I think, I think living in LA and be like, I, I feel confident in, not having the whatever I thought you were supposed to do as as a kid, you know, I thought I'd be married by yes. twenty four, have a kid by twenty six, and that that doesn't at all make me feel like I'm on the wrong path. It just makes me feel like I'm I'm living a non traditional life. Yes, of, uh, you know, putting career first and getting to explore the world, not having to worry about a child, which actually 
is pretty cool. Yeah, which actually is pretty great for now. Kind of like an it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay, well, I'm going to ask you just two rapid fire follow- last questions, and then I'll let you go. What is one topic or concept you wish women, just in general or in your industry, were more open about with each other? Damn. Wow. That's that's hard because I think like there's two, there's two things that come to mind. I okay. think that the competitive spirit that a lot of women feel toward each other and our insecurities about our own self-worth or how we compare with, with another female artist. I think that there's this move toward girl power and I'm I'm so for that, but mm-hmm. I think there's really still underlying cattiness, even though the projection is that there's not that. I don't know. Yeah. I just think being a I female wish- singer, people don't understand what that world really is like. I'm not one, but I've seen it. <laughs> and I, I know you've seen it. Yeah. It's, it's really hard. It's to, intense. It's intense, the, the comparison and all of that. And also, I do wish that there was a culture where we could be more upfront about body and face augmentation yes. and beauty procedures from yes. lasers to microneedling to how I just think it's unfair, particularly to people who don't have access to yes. the the information, to the doctors, to all these things to understand, Jojo, why do you look so young? Yes. Because I have access to laser treatments right. for, for my skin. I've been I have... getting my forehead frozen since I was 24 years old. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So we, and I, I think that you don't know that. So there's like regular everyday people who don't have these things in their faces all the time yes. or these options available to them they think that there's something wrong with them or they're like, how is this happening? I do wish that there was more openness and particularly from the, the people who who have the most to lose to, almost yes. from it. You know, a lot of people have built their whole careers on a uh, false standard of beauty. And yeah. I think that that's, that's dangerous, particularly to young girls. So, I mean, look, I'm, I'm not the most outspoken person about it. I'm not telling, you know, right. I'm not chronicling every, everything. No, but, of course. But I just think that even from a, regular med spa type things mm-hmm. like it's it's an unfair advantage that a lot of people are, are playing on. absolutely it's crazy because people just you immediately go inward and say like it's me I'm the problem I'm ugly these people are better than me you know it's it's so you don't think like they have their face blown up filled and plumped yeah. and whatever so it's hard I totally agree with that my second question is, what's a way in which you're currently working on yourself these days? Obviously, you know, you're doing therapy and things, but what's something specific that you're doing now? I am working on establishing healthy boundaries mm. between myself and everyone. Yes. <laughs> and even for myself, with myself. And yeah, boundaries are something that I'm learning. That must be really hard because when you're a child thrust into the spotlight, that's something they don't give you or like mm. that you don't give yourself or boundaries at all. You're just treated as a commodity. So it must be uncomfortable for you to establish those. It is for me, at least. It's just interesting. And it's taken time. Like, I think turning 30 has been a turning point for me in caring less about everyone being happy with me. Yes. And and just realizing that life is too short. And when I, I love to listen to particularly older women, mm-hmm. like I'm, I'm totally down for, from, uh, to, to taking in wisdom from any older person and just anybody, everybody can teach us something, yeah. but I love hearing from older women and just like what they wish they had 
known earlier, what they wish they had adopted earlier. And that's just doing what makes you happy, regardless of people's opinions of it. And knowing that you have to live with, with your decisions. So if you are helping someone, but it's hurting you, mm-hmm. then you have to ask yourself, what am I doing this for? And what can I live with? And So in that tone, what would you tell Jojo 10 years ago? Your life is going to shake out in a way that you didn't predict, Mm -hmm. but hold on. And you are strong enough. Be kinder to yourself. I I wish I could have imparted that. Yes. Be kinder to yourself. And I wish I could have told myself to explore my other curiosities as opposed to just, just thinking that all I was good at was being a singer or a songwriter and go ahead and, and live a full life. Yeah. And, and don't, don't think that you have to just make this work because this is what you, you know, make money on, but go ahead and explore all those things. I think that that's what your twenties are for. That's what your life is for. But particularly in your twenties, like I wish I hadn't beaten myself up so much for things that were actually out of my control. Absolutely. Well, that's a perfect place for us to end. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You were so unbelievable. Can you just tell everyone where to find you and where to find your EP? And you guys listen to it. I'm telling you, it's phenomenal. It's Jade, unbelievable. you are so sweet. I've, I I've mean loved it. this conversation. I really appreciate it. I'm at I am Jojo on Instagram and Twitter. Okay. So you're finished. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was so Jade. fun. Thank you so much. You're you're really good at what you do. And thank I'm, you. I'm really happy for you. Yeah. This That's is so kind of you. Thank you. No, I felt such a connection to you. I think you're so awesome and such a badass. And like, you're just going to save so many people. You know, you're just doing God's work, really. I mean, I'm sure you've already gotten so many of those messages, but you are going to so change much. so many lives. Really. I mean it. So, I mean, I look up to you so much. I just respect you so much. And I loved meeting you. You're even better in person, if that's possible. You're a gem. Thank (laughs) Thank you so much, Jane. Seriously, you're so, so good at this, Oh, my God. Thank you. That's so, so nice. Thank you. Yeah, just know that. I think you found... I mean, I I don't know what you did before this, but you, I think this is your calling. You're so good at this. Thank you. Oh my God. You made my week. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so go off queen. Yes. <laughs> See, I really didn't lie to you guys. We really, really went there and I'm so grateful for Jojo. She's so honest and brave and sincere and was just like a breath of fresh air. You know, I've never talked really about my parents' mental illness on this show, and I know that she doesn't really talk about it a lot, so I think it was comforting to both of us to be able to, I don't want to say commiserate, but relate on such a deep level. That's it from us this week. I will be back here next week, same time, same place. Thank you so much for listening. So in the meantime, until next week, if you could please follow, rate, and review the podcast on the podcast page, I would be eternally grateful. And if you want to continue the conversation, I am always on Instagram at Jade Iovine, and I am dying to talk to you guys and hear what you guys are thinking. So find me there and let me know if you write a review so I can thank you. All right. I'll see you guys back here next week. Bye. Bye.